Hello and welcome to Politics War Room with James Carville and I'm Al Hunt. This week, our guests are Ehud Barak, the former Prime Minister of Israel, and Admiral James Stavridis, the former Supreme Allied Commander of NATO. Remember, we love taking your questions, so write into politicswarroom at gmail.com or send a tweet to at Politicon for next week's show. We'll get to as many as we can, but don't forget to tell us where you're from. Please check out the links to our sponsors, Miracle Made and Beam, and our episode show notes. We thank you for supporting these sponsors because it really helps make this podcast happen. Please tell your friends about us and remind them to subscribe on Apple Podcasts Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. James, our guest is Ehud Barak, the former Israeli prime minister, defense minister, chief of staff of the Israeli defense forces, and the most decorated soldier in the history of that country. General, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. There are reports that the ground invasion of uh, Gaza may be postponed for a while, what are you hearing? What do you think are the Israeli options? And what are the achievable objectives? And I guess, can you eradicate all of Hamas's capabilities eventually? Uh, it will come, I believe, in the near future. In the near future. It doesn't matter whether it's a day or, or three days or, or five days. It doesn't matter. And uh, basically, the objective set by the government to the uh, armed forces is to kind uh, of uh, demolish, the, the get rid of any military capability of Hamas in Gaza Strip and get rid of uh, uh, Hamas control of Gaza. Basically, we identify uh, following this barbarian um, attack, slaughtering of uh, hundreds of uh, citizens. Uh, we cannot and will not uh, be ready to live side by side with those kind of uh, dash like um, the criminals, and uh, uh, that's the objective. Now, unfortunately, it cannot be uh, performed just by airstrikes. So there is a need, practically almost inevitable need, to enter with ground forces. It could take several uh, forms, either a heavy heavy attack with uh, probably tens of thousands of pairs of boots on the ground, that will take it, uh, the whole area and then clean it. It might take a month, many months. Uh, there is another possibility to take a form of, uh, uh, attacks on certain, uh, parts of the Gaza Strip, certain targets, uh, that will be held for enough time to clean them and then uh, go back uh, to behind our border and, and uh, Continue with the airstrikes. I don't know which which uh, form will be uh, will be chosen, but and it could be changed. Doesn't it? Basically, the operation is not simple, and it uh, it, is, it has to be executed within four different constraints. Number one, the hostage, very sensitive issue. There are more than two hundred of them. Probably quarter of them have also national, uh, other national um, kind of passports. And uh, it, it includes the young children, elderly women, and whatever. It's sensitive, and it's uh, very, very high on our priorities to release them. Uh, second constraint 
is the uh, risk of spreading to the north and becoming a regional war for the Hezbollah in Lebanon, probably some dormant cells in, Ga- in the West Bank and probably even some uh, Shiite militias in, uh, in Syria backed by the Iranians or something like this. Even if that's the case, it will spread. We are not interested, but it's beyond our control. Probably Iran will be interested, Hezbollah. Probably it will cascade uh, down into uh, full scale a war without either side uh, really interested in it as a result of the exchanges that are now taking place every day. And the the third uh, uh, constraint is the international law. We we are committed to abide by the international law. It limits the kind of operation and we are aware of the fact that in spite of having now universal support from everywhere in the world, uh, it will erode relatively quickly once um, accumulated numbers of uh, of um, civilians on the other side will be will be killed, and um, there is no way to fully avoid it. Uh, it's already there are uh, quite sizable numbers. We are warning every day. We are warning the people about the areas where we are having to attack. But the uh, the Hamas use them as a kind of a human shield, and uh, the risk is still there. And the last constraint is to whom to pass it. Assume for a moment that we take the uh, bigger version, we conquer, uh, take over the whole Gaza Strip, we clean it uh, for half a year, we clean it from any rocket or munition depot or training site or office of Hamas then we, we do not plan to stay there for the next 10 or 15 years. So we have to find someone to pass the torch to, and that's also a, a complicated constraint. So uh, the navigation, extra navigation of such an attack uh, is based on data, on facts, on real-time developments. All these constraints are resonating with each other. It's the role of the Supreme Command of the Armed Forces and of the War Cabinet. We cannot discuss it in details in uh, TV, over TV. And I, I do not know all the details. And if, even if I were to know it, I would not share it with right. you over the TV. You, you, you are an expert on special ops rescues, but this... This is far more daunting than in Tebi or anything else. Is it? Is do you think there's any possibility of rescuing those hostages before there's uh, massive bloodshed? I would just uh, uh, tell you that uh, it's more complicated. Uh, people used to have the nostalgic thoughts about events that happened 50 years ago, or about 50 years or 40 years ago, or whatever. Uh, uh, it is not just that our capability are improving. Uh, the other side also understand. They analyze very carefully each case of um, of um, uh, successful operation against hijacked um, uh, uh, hostages, and um, they try to draw the lessons. I think that in a way it's irresponsible to discuss it in more details over the TV because quite probably even uh, Hamas uh, listening to this. Uh, podcast or some other appearances. I, I, I just want to emphasize that it's very high on our uh, priority, probably the highest on our priorities. But having said that, I, I don't think that I have to dive uh, deeper into the details. 
You told Der Spiegel a few days ago that you thought there was a, I think you said a 50-50 chance that Hezbollah, an Iranian proxy, would attack Israel. Uh, do you still feel it's 50-50? And if so, what are the odds that would lead to a much wider uh, war? Uh, even to the Spiegel, I said, it's not 50-50 because I know something that you don't know that brings me to this number rather than 40-50. It's 50-50 because there are two possibilities. Either we will find ourselves in full clash war or we would not find ourselves. So it's, it's by definition 50-50. I just have tried to hit that it's beyond our control because we don't uh, need it. We, I would not recommend it to the Hezbollah. But God knows, probably the Iranians, while we are talking about them, why don't you try to intervene? Probably Hezbollah themselves would be interested. And as I mentioned earlier, even if either side is interested, the intensity of the exchange in every day, the last at least five or six days, is a good uh, kind of uh, starting point to a cascade that can uh, develop within uh, 48 hours into full-scale clash with the Hezbollah. So it's still 50-50. And because we have uh, 50-50, we have to be 100% ready for, for this to happen, but we don't know. So we deployed, we, we mobilized over 350,000 reservists beyond the regular standing army in order to have enough forces both to execute even the massive version of attacks in the Gaza Strip and still be ready to respond if uh, Hezbollah intervened. And as I said, you know, it's a tough, uh, tough uh, challenge that we're facing now in either side and for sure on both of them together, but neither, uh, neither is an existential threat to Israel. Uh, it will, uh, uh, we will have to invest more uh, toil and sweat and tears and blood and more time and more economic damage, but Israel will win over uh, the Hamas and if needed over the Hezbollah. James Carville. Thank you, uh, Prime Minister. It's a great honor to have you on the show. Would you evaluate the reaction of President Biden in the United States so far? And can you give us a sense of what the Israeli public thinks of President Biden in the United States uh, so far into this huge crisis that you faced with? Uh, first of all, the American uh, response was uh, surprisingly swift and almost immediate. Within probably 48 hours, the airlift already started to bring munitions and spare parts and other equipment that we need. And a, a presidential announcement that they will send a aircraft carrier and later on another one. And a few days ago, we learned that some uh, drones or cruise missiles from, from Yemen, for the Houthis, were sent toward Israel. It's about, uh, uh, <laughs> it's about 1200 miles uh, distance. And uh, it was uh, intercepted by American vessel over the Red Sea. Uh, he, uh, the president made uh, statements, uh, speeches, which were both re reflect a uh, full support of Israel, full freedom for Israel to. Uh, we have uh, we have the American uh, backing. Uh, he, the very deployment of the forces. Uh, becomes a very effective warning to the deter the Hezbollah, to warn the Lebanese government, probably even to assure the Lebanese government, the Americans, as they are there, they will try to save them from being destroyed along the way. And a, and a good signal to Iran. And I should add that the president 
carried out messages, moving emotional messages that really rang with the Israeli collective psyche. Many people are still extremely anxious and, uh, and um, kind of uh, shaken by the events. It's the most severe blow that Israel suffered since its establishment. And to hear immediately the American uh, president talks in such a emotional moving terms and uh, expresses uh, participation in a, in a, in a sorrow and, and commitment to help. The way he hugged the people is, is, is great. People tell, why the hell we don't have such a leader that can uh, share kind of uh, emotions and uh, give the feeling that, uh, that he's really uh, there with all his uh, uh, soul, not just his uh, mind. Uh, many called him the last Zionist uh, president, despite of him not Jewish even, but uh, a great friend of Israel. So, Prime Minister of our, our time in, in Israel, and I've uh, I followed the Israeli culture and politics, and it, it, a lot of times these guys are like blowing up a bus, or they go to a shopping center and have a suicide vest. This struck me as a fairly sophisticated military operation that Hamas pulled off. I mean, they were bad paragliders coming in, they had some naval component to it, it, it and the, they didn't use any electronic communications. Does this signal to you that we're in for a pretty long haul here, for a pretty difficult time? First of all, I think they really surprised us in the quality of training, of reparations, of uh, execution. Um, it's a major failure of our intelligence, not giving us an early warning many months ago, and for sure a tactical failure in, in being unable to warn us uh, several hours before it opened. And then there was a heroic uh, performance of uh, individual soldiers, some, even some citizens in the kibbutzim. And those who were surprised and the first, first forces that, that came there, but in spite of the heroic uh, sacrifice, basically our tactical response, the, 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 the operational response was also a failure. The failure goes uh, through the, the upper echelon and, and, and to the, to the political level. It's a, it's a great, big failure. And of course, we should take into account that uh, probably now that we enter into Gaza, probably even in preparation of, 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 of the defense there, somewhat better than what we estimated then and uh, sort of. But I'm still confident that once uh, enough forces will be thrown uh, in, it cannot uh, avoid casualties on our side, uh, sacrifice, and the uh, need of uh, courage of soldiers, but, uh, but I'm confident that we will win over the uh, Hamas in Gaza. And one final question, sir. Is that recall or appreciate Israel is like the United States in that there's civilian control of the military. I mean, the prime minister, whoever it is, is going to make a decision about when to invade or when not to invade or, or, or what to do. And uh, there's some, they're now, who's actually in charge right now? Is it Netanyahu? Is it Benny Gantz? Is it a committee? How, how, how so let's just say the decision to invade Gaza City is made. Who makes that decision? Formally, there is a difference, of course. In, America, in the United States, the president is the commander-in-chief, the equivalent in Israel, chief of staff, uh, equivalent of JCS. 
is uh, Allah is the JCF who is basically advisor to the president. Uh, in Israel, uh, the JCF, the equivalent, the, what we call the Ramatkal, chief of staff, he is the actual commander. But uh, uh, the prime minister is not commander-in-chief. He's basically like in the UK. He's uh, uh, first among equals in the cabinet. The cabinet is responsible as a whole. And the cabinet can uh, assign the authority to an inner body called the world cabinet. Now, basically, uh, Netanyahu got the, the mandate from the public uh, 11 months ago or 10 months ago when he uh, was elected prime minister. Uh, but in the 7th of October, during this day, the trust of the public in him will evaporate. Uh, it evaporated in uh, the trust in the intelligence and our, uh, the army and, and many others lost the, the trust. But Netanyahu for sure lost the trust of the uh, public. If you ask now the, the uh, in polls, uh, some... Uh, 80%, including the majority of his own voters, see him as the, uh, uh, as the person he, who is responsible more, more than anyone else for this whole blunder. And uh, 70% of population thinks that he has to resign. Half of them says immediately, and the other half says after the war. But in Israel, uh, people remember usually very short wars. And six days war was one week, the most important war, 73, was three weeks. Uh, the second Lebanese war was a month. The, the longest clash with Hamas five years ago uh, took almost two months. So if it's two months or, or tomorrow or next week, it's the same. But when you realize that this war might take a year, probably more, if it spreads to Lebanon, it might take several years, uh, you realize that there is a heavy question mark whether Netanyahu can... Uh, lead the nation in such operation. So, in a way, the, the public get a lot of confidence from the American support, and they got a lot of confidence from adding of two, two uh, opposition uh, leaders who happen to be senior generals. Both of them were com commanders of the armed force in the last decade, and one of them was even a minister of uh, defense. And the, the public, uh, even myself, get a little bit more calm that uh, irresponsible kind of uh, uh, un, uh, irresponsible decisions that were not uh, discussed in, in cool head uh, might uh, um, uh, go, go out of this uh, cabinet. That's not the case now. We are quite uh, quiet about it. But there is still the question whether the person who is responsible for such a blunder can be the one who leads you out of it. And in this regard, we have uh, Netanyahu himself. No one defined in a clearer terms than him. He once used the, when, when the prime minister was almost uh, he was head of opposition. He uh, said, cynical people tell us that the one who destroyed uh, is the one that has to repair. Uh, it's like um, uh, raising the idea that the captain of the Titanic, if he would have survived the, the event, should uh, be the captain of the new uh, new big ship of the company. And he said, it's, of course, it's an absurd. It's only the prime minister, whoever is under him, is, uh, is responsible for whatever is in his own backyard. But the prime minister is the one who is responsible for everything. And I just quoted uh, Netanyahu. He even added 
in the past with faith that a person who was fighting three, uh, three or two criminal court cases about corruption cannot, does not have the moral or, or professional authority to run a nation into a, a, a big challenges because there is always a suspicion, and he said a justifiable one, that what really motivates him is his personal need to get rid of the court case rather than the interests of the nation. And these are all uh, quotations of Netanyahu. So the, the best that I can, that uh, even without judging him uh, in advance, uh, I showed that his own definitions uh, might apply to his case as well. Thank you. You have been most generous with your time and, and most insightful, and we really appreciate it. And I hope that people of the United States listen to this and understand what's going on. And I, I thank you very much, and I appreciate it. Thank you. James, our guest, is Admiral James Stavridis, the former NATO Supreme Allied Commander, author of best-selling fiction and non-fiction books, and one of our very favorite guests. He makes us look semi-smart. Admiral, uh, the Israeli uh, Defense Forces seem poised to go into Gaza. Lay out what you think will happen in this kind of urban warfare. Uh, how, How difficult, how heavily casualties, and how long? Um, I will do all those things, but first, uh, on the day we are recording this is James Carvel's birthday, and uh, he's 39 years old plus <laughs> yeah, maybe about four decades, but we'll figure that out later. Uh, I will be. Uh, I'm honored to be on with both of you, and um, let me let me pick up on a thread there because um, obviously James, Marine veteran. Uh, He will have, I'm sure, studied the Battle of Fallujah, which was uh, about 15, almost 20 years ago. This is where two Marine regiments, two of the the best shock troops in the world, were ordered to take down the city of Fallujah, which is maybe 20% of the size of Gaza. And it was a eight-week battle many casualties, and the problem in urban warfare, and former Commandant Chuck Krulak used to call this the three-block war, like three blocks of street, is that everywhere you go, your opponents can be up in those buildings. They have vertical advantage on you. They're firing down. At the ground level, they have created IEDs, improvised explosive devices. Um, They know every turn and twist of the warren and you do not typically. So it's a very hard fight. And then I'll add to it, in Gaza, there are 300 miles of underground tunnels. We, the US military, fought some tunnel warfare in Vietnam, ugliest part of the war, unbelievably difficult, uh, requires a very special mindset. And again, your opponents, in this case, Hamas, Uh, It's their home ground. So very, very difficult fight. And then to conclude, uh, it it, it is compounded by 200 hostages that are somewhere, probably 
split up probably in those tunnels and a very large civilian population. And unlike Hamas, Israel wants to minimize collateral damage, deaths of civilians. So when you put it all together, I honestly can't think of another more difficult ground fight going back to Stalingrad in World War II. Well, it's a hell of a choice for them, isn't it, Admiral? Because they have to retaliate. They can't allow what Hamas did on October 7th to go unpunished. But it's rather, I think you've just laid out how difficult it is to do some kind of surgical response. So it's, it's, it's got to be, when President Biden warns them not to make the mistakes we made uh, after 9-11 and not to overreach, I, I don't know how you do that. I think if you want to look at recent American history, there's kind of two models here. One is the first Gulf War, where President Bush goes in, does what he said he would do, and then leaves. Left some unfinished business. We had to go back again. But when we went back as part of the forever wars after 9-11, in particular in Afghanistan, you can make a pretty strong case that we should have gone in, did what our mission set was in the case of Afghanistan, find and kill bin Laden, take out al-Qaeda, dismantle Taliban control and partnership with al-Qaeda, but then leave. Historical analogy, always imperfect to say the least, but my advice to my Israeli colleagues is go in, destroy those tunnels, capture and kill as much of the Hamas leadership as you possibly can. And by the way, a lot of them are not even in Gaza. They're in places like Qatar. They're legitimate targets of war, in my view. Find, capture, kill Hamas leadership, and then establish a new, this is very important, I don't hear a lot of people talking about this, establish a new security zone, probably about a mile Part of the damage that was done was because Hamas could really clip a couple of fences, jump over another few, and boom, they were in kibbutzes. I think you need a much broader, like a mile, security zone. That will require clearing out the civilians and just flattening it and putting up stronger, better barriers that you can patrol better than the Israelis did in the last go-round. And then finally, you've got to turn governance in Gaza over to, we don't know yet. It could be to the Palestinian Authority. It could be to a pan-Arab entity. It could be to a United Nations entity. The only thing you can't turn it back over to is Hamas. And I think if you're Israeli, and I'll conclude here, if you're Israeli, you really don't want to take over governance of two million Gazans. Well, you've just painted a really, really difficult scenario. So let me make it maybe even worse. What, how do you assess the prospects of Hezbollah waging a second front war uh, against Israel? I think it's about 15 to 20 percent, and that's uncomfortably high. And I, I base that on what we've seen so far. You see Hezbollah kind of scrapping in there using uh, this distraction of what's happening in Gaza down south to uh, maneuver in and around the north. What really worries me, as, as many listening to the podcast will appreciate, Hamas to date, two to three weeks of war now, has launched about 7,000 
projectiles, largely missiles, into Israel, 7,000. Hamas in the north has about 135,000. Hezbollah. Hezbollah in the north has about 135,000 weapons, missiles. So it's, a, it's an order of magnitude much, much higher, much, much more dangerous. And of course, Hezbollah is of these two evil creatures that Iran has created and fed. Uh, one, Hamas in the south, is of course Sunni, the less favored child. Hezbollah is Shia, technically Druze for the most part, and they are the favored child of Iran. So resupply, military support, diplomatic support, political support, there's a lot of Iran in that mix up in Hezbollah. So bottom line, as I look at this and worry about this scenario, uh, I think it's a 15% chance Hezbollah decides to go for it, uh, launch a lot of missiles. I, I think the 80%, 85% chance of them not doing it is because the administration has wisely launched uh, a very significant military force to the region to create deterrence. Two carrier strike groups, a marine expeditionary unit afloat, dozen squadrons of high-end fighters, THAAD air defense systems, two more iron domes. All of that will have a deterring effect, hopefully, on Hezbollah. Yeah, you've written, I believe, that the uh, two big carriers, the Eisenhower and the Gerald Ford, could really inflict considerable damage uh, on Hezbollah. Yeah, because Hezbollah has a lot of targets in a very small space. And so when you have two carriers, each of whom have 80 combat aircraft, and by the way, another uh, 10 squadrons worth of Air Force fighters that can refuel and strike coming from the Gulf, that is an awful lot of U.S. firepower. And it would, I think, uh, if we get here, and I hope we do not, but if we do, it would all be concentrated against Hezbollah targets and missiles in southern Lebanon. Uh, that would be quite a show to watch. And, and I hope the Ayatollahs realize how destructive that would be. They're going to lose one of their children here, Hamas. They have a choice. If they allow Hezbollah to enter the war, I think they'll lose the other child. James. So, Admiral, I would be very clear. My, my experience in the Marine Corps was two years. I walked away with two chevrons, a firewatch ribbon, a sharpshooter badge, and an honorable discharge, and that's about it. No one will ever confuse James Carville with Chester Puller. <laughs> this Tuberville hold on these promotions and transfers strikes me as just an awful idea. But you have some authority, and people will – am I right or wrong in thinking this is just a god-awful thing right now for us to be doing? It is absolutely terrible to the military in three big ways. Number one, you're not getting the best people at the most important leadership positions. And newsflash, we're in the middle of very tense near-combat situations all around the world. High tensions in the South China Sea. Obviously, uh, we are backing a war on the part of Ukraine defending itself from Russia. And as we were just discussing, 
the possibility of very high-end U.S. combat in the Middle East cannot be discounted entirely. So here we are. We don't have a chief of naval operations. We got two carrier strike groups, an amphibious readiness group, off the coast of a war zone about potentially conduct combat operations. But the new chief of naval operations, who is the, the best qualified officer who's come up through an entire brilliant career, is not the actual chief of naval operations. That's an enormous shortfall in leadership. Number two, it's terrible for morale. As, as soldiers and sailors and airmen and Marines watch this, they see a, a very domestic disagreement about uh, a policy issue that is upending U.S. military. So in a period in which recruiting is hard, we are struggling to meet recruiting goals. We are struggling to retain the best and brightest. And yet all of those sailors and, and, and Marines, all of them are watching this interference from Washington unwarranted. So it's a terrible morale thing, James. And third and finally, what this does is there's personal pain. And, you know, it's tempting to say, well, there are a bunch of admirals and generals. It's the brass. Hey, newsflash, it's a pyramid of command. And when one senior officer gets held up, the one below him or her is held up and the one below him or her, and pretty soon you're down to majors and captains and the, and the command sergeant majors because the senior people pick the command sergeant major. The whole military structure of this is simply upended for a domestic policy issue. So Senator Tuberville, who I, I read, I think reliably likes to be referred to as coach because he was the coach of a football team somewhere. I'm not a big football person, but a football coach ought to know you don't put the team on the field when you don't have the coach. So if, if Senator Tuberville is listening to this or hears about it, and I've written about this and spoken about it a lot, hey, coach, come on, this is not a game. Let's get our senior leaders into position. So, so, Admiral, you can't, no matter what experience, even if you have been ROTC for a year, you know that the command structure, everything is about rank. Everything. It's just, it can't be any other way. It's not unfair. You just, you, you can't run it. But this is something that really gets to me. So, we played Army last week in Baton Rouge. And, and very nicely, they, they did the end zone and camo. And, of course, they have two rangers that parachute into the 50-yard line and everybody claps. And 70% of these people would vote to re-elect Tuberville. And we're going to play Alabama a week from Saturday, and I promise you they're going to parachute in a couple of rangers at the 50-yard line. Everyone is going to – or they'll bring some poor quadruplege out, and everybody will clap for him, and they'll go about their business. And it just – maybe I'm crazy, but it, it pisses me off. And I think the military should say, the, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs says, we're not doing any flyovers, we're not doing any parachute jumps in, we're not giving you any veterans, so you can have your fake feel-good crap, and then you got distracted officers on aircraft carriers, and it's my understanding, you drop a wrench in the wrong place, you could blow the whole thing up if you're not concentrating. 
to think of a distracted submarine captain or, or, or you know, admiral that's leading these people, it, I think it's, I, I, I think it's, it's sickening. It really is. No question. Complete agreement. And um, in terms of what the department should be doing about it, um, as you said, the people of Alabama ought to take notice of the fact that the DOD has a lot of infrastructure in the state of Alabama. Uh, and, you know, those are discretionary choices made by the Department of Defense. And I am not here to threaten anybody, but I think that if you are a senior elected right. official in the state of Alabama, you ought to be pretty mindful of the Department of Defense and how much it contributes to your economy. And none of that is guaranteed, point one. And point two, since we're going to put this in a political framework, I, I, I'd say the following to the Republican Party who ought to solve this problem. Mitch McConnell, the other senators, they could go to Tuberville and take him off committees. They could shun him. They could uh, do an awful lot to circumscribe his position. We both know that. Um, thus far, they've kind of avoided doing that. I think they're kind of hoping that he'll, he'll give in at some point. But let me give you another reason this is bad. It's bad for the country because what about the next time when Senator Ocasio-Cortez decides to put a hold on all of our senior military until the Department of Defense walks away from fossil fuels? You know, this is this cannot be allowed to continue. And I assure you, folks on the left are going to be watching this and thinking, hmm, if that works, might be worth trying on my pet domestic project. I think that is a political calculus above my pay grade in the world of politics. But if I were on the right and a rational actor, I'd be saying to Tuberville, hey, be careful of what you're setting us up for. So, Admiral, before I turn it over, we talked about this earlier, I think it was in February, and people are sending me Poland now, and we should send additional, we should send more aid to Ukraine, or, or even we should send more aid to Taiwan. It's like 50, 43 to 39 in favor. In the kind of Gravitas Hunt Carville general global view of the United States' has responsibility to, you know, defend freedom, we're losing. We're just losing, okay? And, you know, under 40, 50% of the people support Hamas. And I, I, I got to tell you, I'm not feeling very perky here about the direction we're going in. Can you buck me up a little bit, Admiral? Troops uh, are getting demoralized I, down in. <laughs> yeah, don't get demoralized. Um, and, and on Ukraine, let's start there. Yes, there is definitely cracking on both sides of the political aisle, I think more on the right than on the left. Uh, but I think if you really run the numbers, and I was just on the Hill yesterday uh, going around talking to senators and congressmen, part of a, a group of senior admirals and generals going up to talk about why it's important that we remain engaged in the world. I, I think there's a general overall consideration amongst our political leadership that we need to be engaged in the world. And frankly, we don't have to imagine what it would look like 
if we just pulled out and came home from Ukraine, from Taiwan, from the Middle East, and just decided like we did in the 1930s that the world's too messy, it's too complicated. We don't have to imagine what would happen because we did it 100 years ago. And how did that work out? Crack the global economy, drop a plumb line through fascism, Second World War. There are good historical norms there. It's up to those of us who believe in U.S. engagement in the world to explain it. And this is something neither side of the aisle has done very effectively. We have got to explain to people why we should be spending these amounts of money. And, and I'll close with this. Um, I think there are very pragmatic, sensible economic arguments that can be made here about why the United States, more than any other country, benefits from a, a global economy that actually works, trade that is protected on the high seas, uh, a lack of chaos in markets for us in places like uh, Europe and Taiwan, um, our oil supplies coming from the Middle East. There are plenty of very pragmatic reasons uh, to believe that U.S. engagement in the world makes sense and it is financially affordable. You know, we have a $22 trillion budget. Um, our entire defense budget is $900 billion. That's a lot of money, uh, but it's it's 3.5% of our GDP. Um, and I think that um, even even more so now as we look at the challenges in the world, we have to explain. I think the center will hold on this, James, because the because the ideas are the right one. Are there, am I concerned like you are? Sure. Am I worried about uh, a potential Trump presidency and his discussions, for example, about pulling out of NATO? Yeah, that worries me. Um, but I think, again, the center will hold on this. Thank you, my morale. Corporal Carville's morale has improved. Thank you, Admiral Albert. <laughs> Boy, you know, that was a great birthday present. Uh, Admiral, uh, let me go back to um, the Middle East. Why do you think Israelis' military and intelligence failed so badly? And how much of the blame do you think rests with the prime minister? Uh, let's examine our own experience here in the United States on 9-11. Point one, took us about two years to really pull apart the intelligence failures of 9-11 and figure out what happened. And we did. And it was, as is almost always the case in really big failures, there's not one reason. It's gonna be a confluence of things. So we don't have time to unpackage the 9-11 report, but I'd encourage people that are interested in the question of Israel and its failure, Go back and skim that 9-11 report. It's rock solid, bipartisan. It led to mm -hmm. the creation of uh, an awful lot of mechanisms that solved shortcomings and problems. So Israel, I'll give you three things that I can see as a snapshot. One is pretty obvious. I think it's complacency. I think that in any given scenario where you're watching intelligence, you can be lulled into a false sense of security by your opponents because you've been watching them for uh, 15 years in this case, since the Israelis really turned over Gaza to Hamas. That's a long time. I think they just weren't as alert as they should have been. And it, it, it makes my heart hurt to say that because I love Israel. I love the Israeli military, the IDF. They are um, Many of them are good friends of mine. 
I think they were complacent. Number two, internal distractions. To your question, the prime minister, I think that the government and really governments, because they've had four of them in the last five years, um, in that internal turmoil, particularly through the summer, this past summer, about the uh, judicial reform and the hard right elements and the governor of Bibi Netanyahu, I think all that created a lot of distraction. Here's an important point to include reservists, military reservists, which really are the backbone of the Israeli Defense Forces, many of whom are saying, we won't mobilize in the case of a Netanyahu mobilization. So wherever you are on the political spectrum in Israel, you ought to be concerned about those divisions and the distractions. And then number three, you know, the enemy gets a vote. Uh, you got to give Hamas a lot of credit for coming up with new things, innovations, the hang glider, paraglider thing, the use of couriers and landlines to shield communication. While I think we're going to discover they ran a very sophisticated fake out on the cell phone. Yeah, everything's okay. We'll lob a couple in on Friday. Meanwhile, over here in the courier network and the landlines, they're saying the big one is on Saturday. Uh, you know, you can sort of see the way in which Hamas took advantage of the distractions, took advantage of how long the Israelis have been watching them. It's a holiday season. Um, when you put all that together, uh, it's a tragedy, obviously, in every dimension. Um, I, was, I was shocked, as many have been, given the, the vaunted uh, reputations of Shin Bet and Mossad and the IDF and Intel and cyber, but they failed and they failed their people. And worst of all, they failed their children in their nurseries. The IDF is not gonna forget that. They're not gonna forgive it. And just like they hunted down every terrorist from Munich in 1972, they will hunt down the leadership of Hamas. Believe me. How has uh, President Biden handled this crisis, Admiral? I think very well. Um, I'll give him high marks in particular on two elements. One is, and, and the three of us know Joe Biden, there's a lot of compassion inside Joe Biden. He, he lost a child famously to brain cancer who had come back from the forever wars, his beloved son, Bo. Um, even worse, earlier, you can't compare tragedies, but early in his life, he loses his spouse, children in a terrible car accident. He, he knows pain. And he has deep human compassion. And I think he deployed that in visiting the state of Israel in the immediate aftermath of these attacks. And I thought that was well handled. And then secondly, my wheelhouse, um, and this is Lloyd Austin, our Secretary of Defense, Tony Blinken, our Secretary of State, Jake Sullivan, our National Security Advisor, they flooded the zone. They two carrier strike groups, on station almost immediately. Marine Expeditionary Unit, as we talked about, dozens of fighters, air defense, all a very coherent, direct, real, tangible signal to the Iranians, don't expand this thing. I think those two things, I give them a, a quite a bit of 
uh, praise for. In terms of where we are today, um, he's got challenges ahead. The minute Israel actually goes into Gaza, world opinion is going to flip. That's the nature of world opinion. You can already feel it kind of turning against the Israelis. The United States is going to have a very tricky passage coming ahead. Thus far, I think the administration has done an exemplary job responding to this crisis. James Carville. So, Admiral, we're sitting in two carrier groups to the Mediterranean. Most Americans say, oh, okay, good. Tell us exactly what a carrier group entails. It's just not an aircraft carrier out there sailing. It has a lot of company with it, doesn't it? It does. So I commanded uh, one for two and a half years, uh, the Enterprise Carrier Strike Group, centered on the carrier enterprise at the center is a nuclear aircraft carrier, can travel nearly a thousand miles in a day. It carries 80 combat aircraft. It's nuclear powered, so it has no fuel requirements for its propulsion. About 5,000 sailors on it, immense command and control, um, an extraordinary machine of war. Around it, at least six cruisers and destroyers, each of them with 400 plus sailors on them exquisite air defense, land attack, Tomahawk missiles, can defend that carrier in high-end scenarios, again, can link in in all the command and control. Typically alongside those seven or so ships will be very close at hand, a Marine Expeditionary Unit, uh, three ships, one of whom is a light carrier, about three quarters of the size of the big nuke carrier, uh, 2,000 Marines, another 1,500 sailors. Um, put all that together with the air cover from Air Force. And then let's close with this, James. Each carrier has 80 combat aircraft on them, 40 of whom are strike aircraft that can go after significant targets ashore. They can be refueled, go long distances, uh, seven acres of sovereign American soil. We don't have to ask anybody's permission to fly those jets. Um, it's a an extremely powerful collection of force. And, and you, you can imagine what the coordination and concentration it takes. And if you're some admiral and you, you, you don't know where you're going and your wife is saying, well, the kids are in school, I don't know the promotion, what I'm going to do, I want to retire. Any, You can't be distracted in like, one-tenth of one percent because you, you, you're doing some, a lot of difficult and dangerous things at one time. Indeed, you're that's right. really kind of scares me. That also, uh, we didn't even mention the submarine force. Same thing, nuclear submarines, Ooh, yeah. oh. and attack capability. This is not a place where we want our commanders distracted because they can't figure out who the boss is. It, it's it is unconscionable what Senator Tuberville is doing. I apologize for being a one-trick pony, but it's 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 one hell of a trick that we face with. Albert? Well, I, I just want to thank the Admiral. You can see why, James, he is one of our very, right, very favorite guests. He does make us ever. look uh, you know, a little bit smarter. Not younger, but a little bit smarter. So, Admiral, I can't thank you enough. You, yeah, I can't you really have enlightened us today. Sounds great, guys. I look forward to uh, coming back on in the new year. I have a new book coming out that's a sequel to uh, 2034, my novel about a war with China. This one, James, will not improve oh, wow. your morale. It's called 2054, set mid-century, and it adds 
artificial intelligence and civil conflict in America to the mix that we had in 2034. So let's book for that in uh, March when the book comes out. <laughs> Abel, you think you'd still drive a ship in Hong Kong Harbor? <laughs> <laughs> Well, no. Well, I love the opening of yeah. <laughs> old crushing. I, I, you know, I, I mean, can you bring back Commander Hunt? I really like that. That is a date. He might be on a pretty interesting case. Stay tuned. All right. The minute that book comes out, you have an invite here because we love to have you on anytime. Thank you so much, sir. Thank you very much, Admiral. Thank you, sir. Thanks, guys. My pleasure. Great conversation. Bye-bye. Hey, James, you know, we've discussed the Democrats' problems, bad Biden's age, bad 2024 Senate map, and, you know, they're real. But it's tough to have a worse week than Republicans have just had. The noose is really tightening on Donald Trump. Three Trump lawyers, all deeply involved in the effort to steal the 2020 election from the legitimate winner, Joe Biden, they all flipped and agreed to testify for uh, Fulton County DA Fannie Wells. That's especially bad news for Rudy Giuliani and for Trump as they tried to steal the outcome in Georgia, which closely but clearly voted for Joe Biden. Separately, House Republicans showed anew they're unfit to govern when they tapped Tom Emmer uh, to be their candidate, and four hours later he had to withdraw. Why? Because Donald Trump trashed him and said he was unacceptable. They then turn uh, to Mike Johnson. But what gets me is, in, in years of reporting in Congress, I've never seen where a, someone from the other side of government or some politician was able to determine the outcome of a House or Senate election. Jimmy Carter uh, didn't have any impact on whether they voted for Tip O'Neill. Ronald Reagan didn't have anything to do with the Senate picking Bob Dole. The Congress on these internal matters has typically... Uh, consider themselves uh, in, you know, really um, independent, uh, and they take great pride in that. But these House Republicans aren't a conference. They're a cult with a madman of Mar-a-Lago pulling the strings. And now they're turning to Louisiana's Mike Johnson, a political neophyte, really, uh, certainly a legislative lightweight compared to some of the others. Uh, I think he's going to become a right-wing speaker. He's going to, he, he, he presents more nicely. He smiles. You know, he doesn't have all of the anger uh, of a Jim Jordan, but the result's going to be the same. Uh, and I think uh, he won't be unseated, but there will be chaos. There'll probably be a government shutdown and they do not deserve to govern. Yeah, I agree with everything, but... I mean, that's where we are. <laughs> I, I wish I had, you know, again, we can hope for the best, and that's all you can do. But I don't, I don't know how long this guy's going to last, honestly. It's, it's a hard it's a hard rodeo to wrangle. <laughs> but, uh, you know, we'll see. And, uh, I mean, you said something I think is true about, you know, you, what do you, you know, the big things that a speaker has to do. I don't think he's going to be very good at any of them, but yeah, I hope I'm wrong. Yeah, no, no, I don't either. And, uh, you know, they say, well, he's a nice guy. He prides himself as a constitutional scholar. He led the effort to reject the electoral votes in the House and maybe 
as bad, if not worse. He led the effort to file an amicus brief supporting Ken Paxton, uh, the uh, criminally challenged Texas district attorney, who wanted to who filed a suit that said that Texas had a right to overturn the result in four other states. I mean, James, one state can say, I'm sorry. Texas says, you know, we don't like the result in Wisconsin. We don't like the result in Georgia. We don't like the result in Pennsylvania. We don't like the result in Michigan. So let's overturn them. Constitutional scholars say that was so frivolous, so ridiculous, the Supreme Court wouldn't even hear it. Uh, and that was Mike Johnson's constitutional scholar. So um, I, I think the key will be uh, he, that timid 20 we've talked about, uh, these Republicans that represent, you know, Democratic or at least purple districts, uh, are they going to go along with this right wing agenda? You know, I hope not. You know, anybody, I used people would say, I'm a constitutional conservative. Well, what am I, anti-constitutional liberal? Yeah. But anybody can invoke the Constitution for anything they want. I, I, I would bet anybody any amount of, of money that this guy has hardly any idea of what's in the Constitution. I, I really, I, I, I don't know, I'd prove it or somebody ask him, but I don't think he has. How, how, how can you do that when you engaged in those kind of lawsuits that even he's like, like even the right-wing co- courts are like, I'm not going to touch this. This is ridiculous. Right. Right. I mean, come on. Well, speaking of the Constitution, I want to send a copy of the First Amendment to North Carolina Congresswoman Virginia Fox, who, when Johnson, after being picked by Republicans, was facing questions, and a one reporter asked a perfectly legitimate question, didn't you lead the effort, at which point Fox yelled, shut up, shut up, you have no right to ask that question. Well, Madam Congressman, uh, you know, I'm sorry. She did have a right to ask. It ought to be answered. I'm sorry you're afraid of the answer. Well, let me say this in defense of Louisiana. No one would ever confuse Congressman Fox with Randy Barks. (laughs) 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 I mean, one day a time when, when people, you know, we're kind of gracious and courteous. Yes. And, yes. And what's wrong with the question? I mean, I. It, it, okay, shut up. Great. Tip O'Neill and Jerry Ford used to play golf together. Virginia I mean, Fox. Just, Jesus. Um, you know, going back, going back to Trump and this, uh, you know, Jenna Ellis and Jack uh, Chesborough, uh, I guess is his name. Tim. Uh, Ken, I'm sorry, Ken uh, uh, Chesborough. I try hard to forget. Right, I know, and and Miss Powell, they they they're they're going to cooperate with Jack Smith in the big charge too of Trump stealing elections, and 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 if Mark Meadows, as ABC says, has flipped, boy, there's no one who has more knowledge that Trump lied. Now, Meadows also lied in his book, so he's going to have to walk that back, and that'll give the Trump people a chance to say how rotten he is after praising him all these years. But there are going to be dozens of credible witnesses uh, against Trump. I, I, I guess I used to think that case was a 60-40. You know, I think it's more like an 80-20, 90-10 right now, James. So the problem with prosecutions are generally the witnesses you end up with were sort of part of the, the larger conspiracy, so they're not overly reputable people. But Mark Meadows is like, you know, is a real lawyer and said, look, you can go to jail. I don't, I don't want to do that. 
And, you know, they're going to prepare him, but they're certainly going to impeach his testimony. But wait a minute, this is what you wrote in your book. And he's going to have to say, assume that they call him, uh, you know, to go and figure this out. Well, you know, I said it, but in writing a book is one thing, testifying under oath is another thing. You can say anything you want in a book. You're protected. You're not protected by testifying under oath. Uh, but there are going to be a lot of non-reputable witnesses at the trial because you wouldn't be around Trump if you were a reputable person. James, Donald Trump, who a jury found guilty of sexually assaulting E. Jean Carroll in a department store dressing room, now claims before an appeals court that he enjoys presidential immunity for anything he said while falsely denying he knew Carroll. Now, there are legitimate reasons to invoke presidential immunity. This is not one of them. Let's remember that the judge in the case declared that however you define it, Trump committed rape, rape. Sometimes this gets lost in reports about the 91 charges, 44 federal, 47 states, and the four indictments against the former president or the civil action in New York State, which found his company committed massive fraud. So again, I want you out there to remember rape. I'd like to hear all those members of Congress, governors and evangelical leaders supporting Trump to tell us why they support a rapist. Well, it's, it's, it's that and so, 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 so much more and nothing changes. And I, I you know, and, and it's good to keep pointing this out, uh, but it, it just terribly discouraged, you know, for my outrage. I, I, I'm so, I am a one trick pony. I, I get something in my car and I can't get it out. And I cannot get this Tubville thing out of my mind. Good. And I, I just would make a, a, a larger point here about current American society. When, when you came up in journalism, or I came up, and, you know, it was, I'm looking by better than anybody else, but, you know, 40% of the people in the newsroom were veterans. A lot of the editors were. Uh, it was it was sort of common. People understood that. And, you know, all right, we had all volunteer on me. Good, good, you know, no one wants to go back to the draft. But I don't think the, in, in the relationship between the military and the public, has, I don't think has ever been more distant than it is today. And that's a dangerous thing. And I'm not saying that these guys should be allowed to run wild or they shouldn't be subjected to to civilian authority, but it, it it's just an outrage that this guy walks around in like nothing's going on, and a lot is going on, and it's dangerous stuff that they're fooling with. And I, I just I don't know what to do to get the public more involved in this. I really don't. And I, but I don't think I'm missing something here, Al. I really don't. You're, you're not, James, and you ought to keep talking about it. You ought to keep hammering it. Admiral uh, Stavridis is going to keep hammering it. Uh, but also, I would say, God damn it. You know, Mitch McConnell and Chuck Schumer, you know, prevent this from happening. Not only lean on Tuberville, you know, no senator should be able to hold something like this for eight months. I'm sorry. That's just a stupid rule, and it, and it ought to be abandoned. It has nothing yeah, to do with the world's greatest deliberative body. That's crap. So, so let me make a—it it appears that this 
might be wrong, but it appears that Mike Johnson is going to be the Speaker of the House, which is going to mean we have I ain't two people from Louisiana going to be at one, two in leadership in the House of Representatives. I, I, I would think this normally would be a joyous occasion, but not so much. But let me just point out something about Speaker to be Mike Johnson. He has two critical military installations in the 4th Congressional District of Louisiana. One is Barksdale Air Force Base, which is a, a very is part of strategic air command. They've been flying Beach-52s and missions out of there for, since almost I can remember. And the other, it was featured in the opening of the movie Patton, where he said you don't want to be shoveling shit in Louisiana or something to that effect. It's called, it was called Fort Polk. They've changed the name of it, and I'm embarrassed to say I at loss to pull up the new name, but it was named after an idiot Confederate, Confederate general should have never been there. And it's a very, a lot of Army veterans train there. I mean, they know what the pine trees are and the bugs and the snakes, and there's legendary stories about it, and they did all the maneuvers in World War II and around there. And this guy is never going to be asked about it. And so much of the GDP of, of that fourth congressional district in Louisiana is related to the Defense Department. And, and we got to hold on this. It, 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 this guy's going to go through and no one is going to ask him. And God damn it, 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 it just pisses me off. And I'll just get it off my chest. Well, keep up that one trick, Pony, because you're, you're, you're right and it's, it's doing great harm to the country. I fa- frankly think you can raise legitimate questions about the patriotism of Tommy Tuberville if he doesn't give a goddamn about the military and the morale he's causing. Mount problems. I think it's like, it might be a patriotism issue. I, I, I would, you know, the Occam's race is, you know, the most evident thing is the answer. I think it's IQ, but you could be right. Well, there's that too. Okay. <laughs> All right, now we're going to do our listener questions. Jim in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, you know, while oh, he's, okay. not, uh, he's not lamenting the loss of the Philadelphia Phillies, says recent articles highlight the meltdown of Republican parties in swing states like Michigan, Wisconsin, and Arizona. Warring factions are leading to organizational dysfunction, and Democrats are raising way more money. Is this something that can have a major impact in the 2024 election, and are Democrats poised to take advantage? Uh, you know, I, I hope so. And uh, I got a, a not very optimistic report about the early voting in Virginia. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to be slightly responsive to the question. But I just want to make a point. I, I am told, and I have some confidence that it's improving. And we, we've talked about this and how Democrats need to keep at least one of the houses in the Virginia legislature. Hopefully they could get two. It's a very, very important election coming up sure on, on Tuesday. Uh, just to also use this as an excuse to kind of report that the Kentucky is, uh, I, I can confidently say that Brashear is right about it, 50, but it's it's inevitably going to close. It's not going to end up more than a point. It's just, it's Kentucky. You just can't win. A Democrat can't win by more than that. And I'm sorry, and I'll, I'll disclosure about Big supporter. Your son works for Brandon Preston in Mississippi. But stand by. This could, this could be an interesting election night. I'm, I'm, that I'm confident. I can't tell you I'm confident 
that we're going to win, but I, Cook has moved it from likely R to lean R. I, 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 you know, I think it's a legitimate toss-up. Well, you, you've just answered Jones' question. Jones in Mississippi. Joan, it's a great question, but you haven't tell us. You didn't tell us where in Mississippi, but next yeah. time you will. And she wanted to know if Brendan Presley has a shot in winning. Points out it would be a huge shot in the arm for Democrats. He has a shot. I, I, I can say that very confidently. All right. Now, having a shot and, you know, winning, or, but, but, and I think that people, it's starting to dawn on people. Let me give you a report. So, Morgan Freeman okay, lives in Clarksdale. Right? Clarksdale is in the Mississippi Delta. They, it, this is not the wealthiest part of the country. In fact, it, I think it maybe. One of the, the absolute poorest parts of the United States. And, you know, so Brandon goes by and visits with Morgan Freeman, Clint Eastwood's favorite actor. And, and, and Tate Reeves goes off on something about, I, I want to vote a truck drivers. You know, I don't care about the Hollywood elites. Morgan Freeman? <laughs> so for, uh, John Max says to me, he said, well, maybe he didn't drive a truck, but he did drive Miss Daisy. <laughs> and I, I think that there's instructive in there that Tate Reeves is feeling the heat. When, when you attack Morgan Freeman, then I'm sorry. <laughs> that, that's a sign of desperation. Yeah. I'm sorry. It is. Jeff in Winfield, Kansas, says, is a Lauren Boebert win a net benefit to Democrats nationally because she's seen by many as typical representative of Republican insanity? Is it possible she garners, garners more votes for Democrats in congressional districts across the country? Jeff, I, and I think you're off base on this. I don't think I don't think that, uh, you know, a competitive race in New Jersey or in Nassau County or in Michigan that Lauren Boebert's going to become an issue. And I think the guest we had on three or four weeks ago, Adam Frisch, this is my prediction, in a very red district, he is going to defeat Lauren Boebert. Uh, and I think that's good for Democrats and probably for Republicans, too. Yeah, I was just, you know, name drop. I was just an Aspen, and I have a video. I think I'm going to get it done and post it on YouTube of me going to the hooch cocktail craft bar in Aspen where she went before they had the famous Beetlejuice yeah. and yeah. ran up a $317 bar tab. Well, I did a video of me going in there <laughs> about Lauren Boebert. I'm, I'm going to alley get somebody to post it on YouTube so people can watch it. But I, I do think, and I, I talked to a, a staffer on the first campaign, he came by, and uh, he lost by 500 and. 17 votes the last time, I, I would bet that, that she's going to lose. Yeah. I really yeah, would. I would, too. I would, too. You know. I think you're, you're absolutely right. James, this is, not a, this is not an upbeat one. I'm sorry. But Brian in Hammond, Louisiana. Oh, God. Says, I'm a Louisiana that. resident, and I'm saddened by the latest failures of our voters. My state representative and Senate districts didn't have a single Democrat candidate. Uh, fortunately, it looks like the less crazy Republicans won in those races, but you got creamed in the gubernatorial race. Is there any path out of this mess? All right. So this is, you know, this person is from Hammond, Louisiana. They just two days ago, not very far from Hammond on I-55, which basically goes from New Orleans suburbs to Chicago, was a massive the fog and, and smoke from swamp fires because the swamps don't have any goddamn water, so they're all catching on fire. It was horrible, 
horrible multi, not multi, I was over 50 vehicles in a pile up of, I think, seven people were killed. I don't know how many people were maimed or whatever. And he's from Hammond in Tangible Parish, which is the home parish of our great governor who we're going to lose. It was also the home parish of, of Kim Mulkey, the LSU women's basketball coach who won the national championship. She's from Tickfall. It, is a, it has a, a, a great history, but I got to share this, our listeners' concerns. It, it, it was a catastrophic election in Louisiana for Democrats. We're not feeling candidates. We had a, we got 26 percent, and the the guy that won, uh, I just pray that just not, doesn't him the way that I, I fear it will, but we're going to have an extremely, extremely right-wing governor, an extremely right-wing state legislature, and I, I shudder when I think about the possibilities, but, you know, here, here's hoping and praying that Jeff Landry kind of sees somewhat of a light, and I don't care can have conservative government if he wants, but let's don't pick on certain people or burn books and yet that nonsense. You worry that he could top Bobby Jindal as the worst governor in the history of Louisiana. Easy. I worry. I worry, but I, I also have to feel like, you know, he's he's the governor. Uh, hopefully, he, you know, there's some things that he's talked about doing that would be good and, you know, crime reduction in the French Quarter is important to to, to state and city, but I'm I'm I'm, I'm have some trepidation about the future here, but yeah. pray that I'm, I'm wrong. I, I do too. Um, Laura in Gainesville, Florida says, is it time to bring back pork? Could it help members accountable to their constituents? Laura, they actually have done that. Uh, I mean, you can do that. It's very limited. It doesn't really add to the deficit or anything, but it really what it does in a normal Congress, and this is not in this house, is anything but normal. It helps grease uh, the legislative process. Uh, and so, uh, you know, I think on balance is probably a good idea. You know, from Gainesville, that, that's where the University of Florida is. Mm-hmm. And the, 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 the University of Florida is under serious political attack from DeSantis. And people need to be clear about something. Florida is, is a top 10 state university in the United States. Don't there's a kind of tendency to lump, you know, a lot of these schools together. Other than maybe Austin, A&M, and Vanderbilt, and Florida's just as good as any of those, the University of Florida. And they're trying to destroy, you know, we, I can't stand their football team. We play them every year. It's one of the best games I've ever seen in LSU Florida games. We play them in, in, in Baton Rouge in November. But they're trying to wreck a, a essential, important State university in a, in a popular state, and, and I, I hope the University of Florida can survive the assaults that is under right now. I really do, because boy, it really is. Uh, it really is under assault. It he is under is, assault, uh, and it's a, you it's know, a, he's it's taken a another one of those things and just turned it around. Um, right. Donna, all right, James. This is a good closing question. This is a critical closing question. Donna in Winnipeg, Canada says, what effect would another Trump White House have on our country's relationships, our allies, and our people? I think that another Trump administration would be the end of the Constitution as we know it. 
and that guy took off. He tied permanently. He's already saying that. All right. He's, I mean, whatever we, you know, go, it just, it did, I don't even think people, a lot of these people don't care. And it's going to be, in addition to the criminality and the thieving and the malfeasance and the rudeness and the crudeness and the, 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 the racism and the, the everything else, it, 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 and he's been very clear to be to be very clear. He said, "I'm not I'm not getting these kind of you know General Kelly and Rich Priebus kind of people. We, we're we're going to have people that are going to do the work that I want them to do, and I believe it. And you should I believe him too. too. You yeah. should believe it. Yeah. He's going to destroy yeah. this freaking country." I could not agree more. It is the, it is the scariest thing I have seen, oh, and I've God. been in Washington for over 50 oh. years, and there's nothing like this. But, there's uh, nothing like it. Nothing. Uh, anyway, so, uh, you know, thank you for that question. I appreciate uh, it. And I will also point out, James, that uh, for those who say, well, old James Carville is just a Democrat, Michael Ludig, one of the most conservative federal judges, twice considered for the high court by Republican presidents, says the same thing you're saying, that if Donald Trump comes back for a second term, that may well be the end of the con- of constitutional government. You know, we have a, tonight. I'm going to the Bulwark Conference. They have it in the French Quarter. I had lunch yesterday with Bill Crystal. No one is going to confuse Bill Crystal <laughs> with being a rabid Democrat. Mm-hmm. But he's as rabid as I am about where it is. And, and all of Sarah Longwell, Tim Miller, uh, you name it, Charlie Sykes. I mean, you know, people that. Uh, you, you got to really respect, and they are just where we are. And you can admit it's true I'm a lifelong rabid Democrat, but there are a lot of people that are not lifelong rabid Democrats that feel the same way I do. Uh, well, I'll give you a report. That. My wife is being honored by the Constitution Center in Philadelphia on Friday night, and they bring in some of the top legal minds and judges and everything in the country. And I'll bet you there's a consensus of the same thing, but I'll, I'll report back to you on that next yeah, week. Please, please do. And it's a richly deserved award. And I, there's a lot of, a lot of non-rabid Democrats that are scared oh. to death about this. And don't, don't kid yourself. They are. Hey, we love those questions. Keep them coming in. If we didn't get to yours this week, we'll try to get to it next week. James, there was one, you know, in our question period, there was one uh, note from a reader that I left out, and I apologize. Uh, And that's to wish you a happy birthday from his biggest fangirl. (laughs) I am so proud of your show and grateful. It's become his North Star. It's a woman named Mary Madeline uh, who sent that note. So I just want you to know all of us and everybody else wish James Carville a very happy and a very young and vibrant 79. There we go. All right. We'll get through the day. We'll get through the day. Hey, thanks for listening to Politics War Room with James Carville and I'm Al Hunt. Don't forget to send your questions for us by email to politicswarroom at gmail.com or tweet them for next week's show at Politicon. Following this episode, we'd really appreciate it if you check out the links to our sponsors, Miracle Made and Beam, and our show notes. We thank you for supporting them because when you do, it helps make this podcast happen. To keep up with us, subscribe to Politics War Room on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. 
You can also find other shows you might enjoy on the Politicon YouTube channel or when you search Politicon on your favorite podcast sites. And remember, please rate the show with a five-star review. We'll be back next week with another show as we continue our war room planning. 